Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week's podcast will be about Israel. Earlier this month, Israel marked 75 years since its independence. There was much to celebrate. It has made peace with many of its Arab neighbours. It hosts a thriving tech sector. It's remained a a pretty vibrant uh, democracy, if you exclude the occupied territories, that is. Uh, But at the same time, um, the country is more polarised than it's ever been since its founding. And not everyone was in a party mood. Many people were, in fact, taking to the streets and revolting about all sorts of things going on within the country. In December last year, the Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu introduced a series of very controversial judicial reforms, which brought hundreds of thousands of Israelis out onto the streets. And in the long term, the country's demography brings a lot of, of challenges, particularly to the idea of a, of a two-state solution. On the one hand, there's a ever-growing ultra-Orthodox population. On the other, Arab uh, Israelis are becoming a more and more important part of the, of the, of the population. And uh, when it comes to the conflict with the Palestinians, that continues to, to fester, as demonstrated by recent clashes between Israel and Islamic Jihad, as well as rising tensions in the West Bank. Here to help us make sense of all these challenges and uh, to think about what Israel means today, what its future is, and what kind of relationship it it can have with Europe, we have a very special guest. Merav Mikhaili is the leader of Israel's Labour Party. She has been since 2021. She was Minister of Transport in the Bennett-Lapid government, which preceded Netanyahu's return as Prime Minister. And she has also been a very important part of Israel's political and cultural life as a television presenter for uh, many years before she went into politics. Merav, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, Hello, Mark. And it's nice to meet all your listeners. So I'd like to talk about the big picture and everything that's going on with, with Israel at this kind of important moment. But a lot of people have been transfixed by the debate about judicial reforms over the last few weeks, um, which, uh, as I said earlier, taken uh, you know driven uh, many people to the streets and uh, raised all sorts of questions about uh, Israel as a democracy, both uh, internally but also people are comparing it to countries like Hungary and, and others around the world. Can you maybe talk a bit about that before we kind of go into the bigger picture? How do you see these reforms? Where do they come from? How serious are they? What does it mean for, for the idea of Israel as a democracy? Indeed, this is, um, I think, um, the major, um, the most major thing that's taking place in Israel at the moment and is kind of shadowing everything else. And really, I think, uh, exhausts maybe the dilemma that Israel faces uh, in its 75th year. And that is, where does it go from here? Uh, because this coalition brought about this thing. We we don't call it a judicial reform because it it's not a judicial reform. It's an attempt to change the basic character of the state of Israel and turning it from a uh, democratic liberal country with you know its challenges, as does every uh, democracy has, um, or to make it a non democratic religious state, which the whole package of the legislation 
that has to do with uh, this coup that they call a reform um, actually will lead to. This is more than uh, 140 proposing proposed legislations, some big, some small, but all of them take Israel from being a country that has a democracy to a country that will be religious and non-democratic. So this is what's at stake here. And this is why hundreds of thousands of people have been taking to the streets for what is it like already 19 weeks, I think, um, from here to there, like they say. Um, it's been a long time and many, many people keep coming out every week and keep uh, working, you know, in any uh, capacity which they may have. And it, and we see, I think, every sector in Israeli society, starting from institutions which we never saw stand, taking a stand, such as the central bank or um, former security highest uh, positions or pilots, uh, reserve pilots and fighters from other units in the uh, in the army. We see doctors, we see social workers, we see teachers, we see really sectors who have never, uh, ever before taking taken a stand which is considered to be political are now uh, stepping up and saying uh, this is something that we will not have, we will not allow to happen. So these are sectors that we've never before ever seen taking a stand that's, um, that may look uh, like political because um, the non-right uh, part of Israeli society uh, is very afraid of looking or seeming or being uh, perceived or portrayed as political. And still they... Um, stood up and said, this is a red line which we will not allow to cross. We will not have um, the demo our democracy taken away from us. Netanyahu put his reforms on hold, or coup, if you want to call it that, um, in April. And President Herzog has been sort of leading talks to, to try and find some sort of compromise since then. How do you see that developing? Has the Labour Party been involved in those talks? No, the Labour Party was against... Uh, getting into any talks or negotiation with the coalition about that. Because we saw, as I mentioned, that every sector in Israeli society and, and really officials who never, ever before spoke, uh, spoke up, speaking against it very strongly. We saw world leaders speaking against it. So um, Netanyahu's only option to get some kind of legitimization from someone to this strongly non-legit uh, coup was from the opposition. And that is why Labour was strongly against doing anything that would even suggest that we uh, legitimize this thing. So we were very much against going into this, these talks. But since part of the opposition, my uh, colleagues uh, Gantz and Lapid decided uh, to join those talks, then we decided to also join as uh, sort of the gatekeepers to make sure that uh, they are not giving away anything that uh, shouldn't be given away. Unfortunately, though, uh, we weren't able to uh, do what we came to do in these discussions because they were held, they are held in a very non 
transparent way. Uh, Labor was not invited to all the talks. And so we withdrew from them already a good number of, of weeks ago. Uh, to first of all, because we will not be part of something that we are not really a part of. And secondly, as I said, because we couldn't perform the duty that we took on ourselves, and also to signal to the Israeli public that we can't vouch for what's happening there because it's not transparent. And so the principal problem with those talk remains. It is legitimizing something that should not be legitimized to begin with. Uh, I see no, this morning we saw something in Haaretz newspaper suggesting that they may agree on something in order to achieve something else. I still haven't uh, gotten all the details, so I still haven't said anything publicly about that, but I doubt that this, that there is an agreement that I can also, um, you know, agree to. Okay. Maybe we can explain. And the focus a bit and talk about some of the trends in Israeli politics more generally. The, the party you lead has an august record. It's uh, associated with Israel's founders and many of its greatest statesmen and women. You had a picture of uh, God the Mayer on top of your head when we were uh, talking earlier. But for the last 20 years or so, the, the left has been on a, a clear downwards trend and the right has been dominating not just uh, the institutions of government, but the discourse around politics um, more widely, in fact, almost completely in some areas. And um, in some ways, the, the reforms which we're talking about um, you know, they're brought in by the most right-wing government ever. And um there may be a sort of culminating process of this bigger societal political shift, which has taken Israel into being a very different country to the one that I visited as a child and that my um, my forefathers emigrated to in the 1930s. Um, what, can you talk a bit about how you see that developing and, and why you think the Labour Party has gone from being this hegemonic force to one that's really struggling to have its voice heard, as you were describing earlier. Um, so first of all, I, uh, let me c- commend you for describing very well uh, and, and really capturing the, the situation in Israel. It, it's exactly 30 years that this thing has been developing. And there is a clear moment where it began, and that is 1993 when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was elected chair of the Likud for the first time and became the chair of the opposition to the late Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who was in the midst of promoting the Oslo Accord, an unprecedented uh, peace process with the Palestinians, uh, which gave huge hope uh, to Israelis and to Israel. Um, Yitzhak Rabin realized at the time, A, that the big problem would be Iran, and that uh, we have to get the Palestinian conflict off the table if we want to be able to deal well and effectively with the threat that it is becoming. And secondly, he realized that um, there is there's no no avoiding finding a solution to this conflict that is consuming so much of Israel's energy and many, many other things. And the Point, the, the fact of the matter is that really, you know, the, the newspapers were in uh, light blue 
just to give you an idea of like how uh, how much hope there was in the air. But at the same time, obviously, there were big challenges of terror and such. And when Netanyahu became the chair of the opposition, he took the campaign against Oslo and against peace and against Itzhak Rabin and against labor and against democracy. Uh, he took it on many, many levels uh, up, unfortunately, at, to measures which we didn't have in Israel before, a lot of incitement and violence and demonization and delegitimization that we didn't have in our public and, and political sphere before that. And changing the essential question of where does Israel go to the one that we are seeing so clearly and uh, strongly now. Is it a liberal democratic state for that is the home of the Jewish people, but has equality for all and has security that stems not only from its um, military power, but also from peace with our neighbors? Or is it a religious, non-democratic uh, war, uh, country that is constantly invested in conflicts, military and otherwise? Unfortunately, the violence and the incitement have prevailed first and foremost because they led to the assassination of Itzhak Rabin. And unfortunately, again, they continue to prevail because we, and we see this in many, many other places in the world that are dealing with far right and the far right with those um, standards. I think what happened now is that a lot of things that were covered maybe under uh, whitewashes, uh, words such as security or Jewish or I don't know, have, have now came out for what they really are. The question of democracy versus authoritative uh, state, the question of democracy versus a religious state. And that is what's on the line now. Uh, now, in the process of this violence and incitement that, as I said, led to the assassination of Itzhak Rabin, it also led to diminishing the political power of the liberal camp in Israel in general. It's not, I mean, labor's weakening and it's dramatic because it was, uh, before I took it on, it was almost this, it was always gone. I mean, now, yes, we are very tiny. We are only four mandates, but when I took it in 2021, it was on its way out completely. It had three mandates and zero in the polls for a long time. So, um, it's not only labor. It's the fact that this, the, the, Bodies that wanted to replace labor, um, first of all, did not, are not to this day, are not advocating for the same ideology, the, the, the liberal Zionist ideology that really formed and established the state of Israel. And secondly, uh, do not have enough political power to be able to form a democratic liberal government. And that is the biggest challenge that lies ahead of us, which we must uh, be able to really live up to. And that challenge is, is kind of mainly a demographic challenge. It's interesting. People always say demography is destiny. And a lot of people thought that, that it was the demography which was going to drive the peace process and which was going to lead to a lot of the developments that you talked about. But interestingly, 
the social basis um, for that sort of secular, uh, peaceful, democratic Israel that you're describing seems to have been challenged by massive inflows of, um, of, of people to the country. Demography's led it in a very different direction to, to what people hoped in the, at the beginning of the 80s. Well, I always remember that demographic profits uh, usually do not fulfill, you know, that usually, I mean, if it, if it were true, then first of all, our planet would not have been able to uh, contain us long ago. And um, in America, Republicans would have been like already, you know, uh, without any chance for a president, et cetera, et cetera. So I remember very, very clearly that nothing is given. Nothing is a given. Nothing is uh, is fate. I do not believe in fate. I believe that we create our destiny. And it's in our hands and we have to realize it and we have to act on it. We have to be able to take responsibility and to do what is needed in order for the reality we want to see um, form by us. So I am not discouraged by demographics at all. Uh, what I am is worried about the unequal resources that the right and the extreme right and the settlers and the ultra-Orthodox have, uh, which enable them to take over, as you uh, described, to take over the political and the public sphere in Israel and to take over the discourse. Uh, resources that unfortunately we do not have on our side of the political map and we have to uh, obtain in order to be able to fight back effectively, more effectively than we do today. So my concentration is on the things that we can actually do and not on the things that are less in our uh, hands and, you know, not give in to whatever profits. So um, you talked a lot about peace earlier and the kind of old way that we thought about peace was that there was a sort of positive relationship between peace within Israel, um, uh, working with the Palestinians towards a two-state solution and peace with the Arab neighbours outside that, that um, in a way, the Palestinians were the gatekeepers to a kind of wider peace process. But those two trends have been decoupled recently in that there have been some advances with Arab neighbours, particularly around a sort of shared fear of Iran and the Abraham Accords were, uh, you know, the, the most powerful example of that. And people are now talking about the possibility of, of having some sort of settlement with Saudi Arabia, um, which would build on the, the Abraham Accords. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, the two-state solution has, has never looked further from a reality, um, both on the ground as settlements continue in different places, but also there is no peace process that, that worth its name anymore, um, and not even any kind of leaders in, in many parts of the territories that, um, that Israel could talk to, even if it wanted to. If you could talk about how you see the future of peace, both internally with the Palestinians, but also how that relates to the kind of wider uh, prospect of, of de-escalation with Arab countries. It took me a minute to realize that you're, when you're saying internally, you mean the Palestinians. In Israel, it certainly is not perceived as internally. Um, and I, it's part of the challenge to not have uh, 
all of the population, uh, the Palestinian population, a part of the one state, because this will be the end of the Zionist vision. And the Zionist vision was a very liberal one that uh, completely and utterly drives for equality um, without any reservations. But uh, in order for the Jewish people to have a place where we can define ourselves, uh, we need to have equality between a Jewish majority and anyone else and to have a border between us and between the Palestinians uh, who are um, in need for their own self-determination. So it's obviously the two-state solution is not around the corner. But first of all, I'm speaking as an Israeli leader, as an, and as an Israeli leader, a solution, a political, peaceful solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a number one interest. As I said, because this conflict is consuming so much from Israel in, in many, many ways and is, by the way, linked directly to the um, so-called judicial reform, the coup that we are seeing now, because it it derives a lot from settlers' desire uh, to do in the West Bank whatever they want to be to do without being accountable to anyone. And the Supreme Court in Israel and ju- judicial system is one of the last barriers that they are facing constantly. Now, what we're seeing again is, yes, there was the Abraham Accords, which, of course, I voted for. And, you know, any um, agreement that we can achieve with any one of our neighbors is um, something that we should very much try to achieve. But uh, it's very clear that Saudi Arabia is something that cannot work without some kind of progress in the Palestinian channel. I think it's it keeps coming back to anyone who thinks differently. Uh, there's Every time there's this legend where we can uh, promote the peace with other Arab countries without doing anything constructive about the Palestinian uh, issue, and that does not prove itself to be uh, true, certainly not regarding Saudi Arabia and the new um, agreement that they have. They have an agreement with Iran. So I think we need to look at this reality. Anyone who thinks that we can continue to avoid the Palestinian issue. Uh, there's also, you know, uh, working, separating the uh, talks with other Arab countries, separating them from the Palestinians is, in my mind, a completely counter interest of what Israel should do. It's, it should be the other way around, leverage uh, the influence that others may have uh, in order to allow us and the Palestinians to be able to reach, to first of all, reach some kind of agreement and be, of course, one that would be good for all. This is what I would aspire for because I'm trying to think of the the biggest, the biggest possible good that will make everyone's life much, much, much better. But what what you say? So, uh, looking at what you're what, saying is, you know, music to the ears of all Europeans who supported this um, <laughs> approach that you're describing um, with money, with diplomacy, with political uh, capital, with lots of dreams over over the last few decades. But the gulf between their stated positions and what's happening on the ground is kind of getting more and more painful as time goes on. What do you think it's kind of realistic to so if we agree um, totally with where you want to get to, obviously we wouldn't start from where we're at at the moment, but what do you think it's realistic to 
to imagine happening in the in the kind of uh, near term over the next few months and years? No, it it completely depends on what happens within Israel. Because as long as we continue to have uh, the domination of the right wing and the settlers' right, uh, far right power and the uh, the religious authorities that um, that really have such a grasp on Israeli uh, politics, then I suspect that we will see more of the same, and it'll be it'll get worse constantly. So this is why it's so important that we wage our political fight within Israel, so the liberal uh, camp can go back to power and start doing what needs to be done uh, regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the relationship with the rest of the Arab countries. Um, you know, you said this is music to Europeans' ears. That's uh, I, I always say the archive is my friend and my alibi because I long before I came to politics, you know, I was one of my many activities was promoting the Arab League Peace Initiative at the time, which is in principle, still there. Uh, of course, a lot of things have happened, but the idea that is in the um, in the basis of this initiative is one that we should seek to promote. That is what I believe strongly today, and this is one of the main reasons why I am uh, still fighting within Israeli politics. Thank you very much. We're coming towards the the end of our um, time, but. Um, given that we started with the 75th anniversary of, of Israel, maybe we can look forward 75 years and, and tell us what kind of country do you think Israel will be uh, in 75 years' time and what the, the next 75 years of Israeli history are going to uh, contain? Remember we talked about um, that the, there's no fate. It's a choice that we make. Humans determine their own fate. So uh, Israel can uh, continue going in the path of becoming less democratic, more religious, more um, less good for itself, for its inhabitants and for its neighbors. And it can choose the uh, path of going for its strengths and in innovation, in creativity, in uh, so many successes, and in being also uh, such in everything that has to do with democracy, with giving more freedom and more equality of opportunities to all of its citizens, uh, men, women, the gay community, Jews, non-Jews, etc., etc. Et it's all there. The potential here is huge. We just have to decide to go for it. I know that I am committed to take Israel in that direction. And you mentioned a lot before about how, you know, any progress is going to be endogenous. It's, these are Israeli political battles which need to be fought, and that's what you're committing yourself to do. Um, and Europeans, obviously, not even the most important external players to the extent that they can shape things. But what do you think European governments should be doing at the moment to kind of encourage um, uh, the sort of developments that you've been describing? You know, um, I think it was Mark Twain who said that a pa uh, patriotism means standing by your country at all times and by your government only when it deserves it. So it's um, it's always very uh, complicated and kind of tricky as an Israeli um, leader. You don't want to 
invite anyone uh, to do anything that may be portrayed as, um, you know, as pressure from outside of, or anything of the sort. But I think it's, and it's very clear that this government is uh, threatening now also the uh, support that European governments are giving to the liberal and democratic forces within Israel. It's uh, one of the many legislations that they are threatening with. The most important thing for me to tell uh, Europeans and, and democratic forces everywhere is do not give up on us. Israel and Israeli citizens are not, uh, by large, of course, we have very strong uh, far-right non-democratic forces, but the majority of the people here do believe in democracy, do believe in equality, do believe even in peace after all these years of uh, strong brainwash against it. Do not give up on us and stand with us. We can prevail. Okay, wonderful. What an inspiring note to end on. Um, There's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. What do you want to... What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I, you know, I often wondered, is it even responsible of me to read <laughs> my favorite prose rather than things that have to do with work? Um, but what I'm reading at the moment, and this is like my, really, this is what I love. I think maybe my most favorite activity. I'm reading Edith Wharton's um, The Age of Innocence. This kind of literature is my favorite. Feminist women from classic Europe and the beginning of America, which, you know, um, corresponds with the classic, uh, classical Europe. This is really my weakness. And when it's such good literature and it's uh, such, and these are such important human lessons and feminist lessons then yes by all means fantastic so um we'll put up link to uh all the publications we mentioned including edith wharton's edith wharton's uh, age of innocence on our website at ecfr.eu if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast please do head to whatever platform you use to download it and subscribe to future episodes and while you're there it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive uh, review and maybe even a five-star rating because it will help other people come to the podcast. Yes, um, by all means, I'm giving you a five-star rating. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so um, thank you very much for listening. But for now, from Marav and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Kiara Bricker and the editor of this episode is Maria Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.